1952, President Harry Truman announced that the government was seizing the nation's steel mills to head off a strike that would disrupt the war effort in Korea. The steel mills challenged the seizure, and the case was resolved by the Supreme Court less than eight weeks later. The dissenters, who happened to be the president's poker buddies, would have given him flexibility to deal with this emergency, but the majority issued a swift rebuke, and one justice's concurrence has continued to shape the way we think about executive power to this day. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're looking at Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. It was the spring of 1952. America was fighting a war halfway across the world on the Korean Peninsula. Back at home, trouble was brewing. The United Steel Workers of America were threatening to go on strike, potentially imperiling the war effort. Drastic times called for drastic action. President Harry Truman broadcast to the nation that the federal government was seizing the nation's steel mills to ensure their continued operation. Here's Truman. With American troops facing the enemy on the field of battle, I would not be living up to my oath of office if I fail to do whatever is required to provide them with weapons and ammunition they need for their survival. The next day, Truman sent a letter to Congress explaining, I took this action with the utmost reluctance. The idea of government operation of the steel mills is thoroughly distasteful to me, and I want to see it ended as soon as possible. However, in the situation which confronted me yesterday, I felt that I could make no other choice. The other alternatives appeared to be even worse, so much worse that I could not accept them. Truman invoked the Defense Production Act of 1950 to seize the steel mills. The only problem? That law didn't authorize him to seize anything. It provided for mediation of labor disputes that threaten our national defense. Another law, the Labor Management Relations Act, better known as Taft-Hartley, gave the president the ability to enjoin a nationwide strike that would threaten an entire industry. In debating Taft-Hartley, Congress considered and rejected giving the president the power to seize facilities where a threatened work stoppage would, quote, imperil the public health or safety. The steel industry quickly brought a challenge in court, and the matter rocketed through the judiciary and was resolved by the Supreme Court in less than eight weeks. What resulted was a swift rebuke by an all-Roosevelt and Truman-appointed bench of the president's invocation of implied emergency powers to seize the steel mills. But what does the Constitution have to say about executive power? The framers of our Constitution knew we would need an energetic executive to protect against foreign attacks and for the steady administration of the laws, as Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist 70. But the framers were also familiar with the dangers of giving one man too much power. To safeguard Americans' individual liberty, the framers diffused power among the three branches of government, vested specific powers in each branch, and set up a system of checks and balances to ensure that no single branch could become too powerful. By dividing power, ambition would be made to counteract ambition, as James Madison wrote in Federalist 51. In other words, the disputes are actually intentionally built in to the system. That's Jennifer Mascott, a professor at the Scalia Law School, 
and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. She continued. And the hope would be that um, each branch and each actor is sufficiently well-equipped that they can, in a muscular sense, exert those interests so that there's not one power center moving forward. And what are the things the Constitution says the president can do? For starters, Article 2 of the Constitution requires the president to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. While the president enjoys wide discretion in how to execute the laws, that duty does not include creating laws. As Justice Joseph Story explained in his commentaries on the Constitution, the president may point out the evil and suggest the remedy, but he lacks the power to enact or enable laws on his own. The Constitution also assigns the president the role of commander-in-chief of our armed forces, the power to sign or veto bills passed by Congress, and, with the advice and consent of the Senate, the responsibility for making treaties and appointing judges, ambassadors, and officers of the United States. Naturally, presidents throughout our nation's history have pushed the envelope, pressing their enumerated power to the outer reaches and sometimes beyond. We can't wait for Congress to do its job. So where they won't act, I will. If we cannot do this one way, we will do it another. But do it, we will. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Now watch this drive. I'm directing the Secretary of Commerce to take possession of the steel mills. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. As your president, I'm announcing tonight a new plan to require more Americans to be vaccinated. Responding to a reporter's question about where the power to seize the nation's steel mills came from, Truman barked, read the Constitution. It gives the president the power to keep the country from going to hell. But there isn't a keep the country from going to hell exception to the president's enumerated powers. As our colleague Steve Simpson explained. I think it's surprisingly easy for people to just accede to broad exercises of power, whether it's by the executive or any level of government. Emergencies beget emergencies and emergency power. And we have to really think hard, especially in today's world, about what constitutes a real emergency that requires immediate action. Otherwise, uh, you know, the whole country is going gonna, is gonna to go down the tubes. And when there's an emergency that demands action, Steve observed. There's no president that is going to say, damn, Congress didn't give me authority to deal with this. Or so I'm just going to sit around and be like, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. There are moments when executives are faced with really difficult situations and decisions, they are going to take action. But I think we can draw a distinction between the actions they take and then sanctioning them after the fact. But once the crisis is over, Steve said. We can think it through. And all right, let's draw some clearer lines here. But the fact that courts do that, in my view, does not mean when there's a true emergency you know, the bombs are falling, the planes are coming out of the sky and, you know, crashing into our buildings. And the president is just going to twiddle his thumbs and say, oh, well, the court said this, you know, let me get the attorney general to read the decision. He's going to take action and he's going to be have support for that. Presidents will solve the problems they have to solve, but we still have to be hard-headed about what the limits of their power is. Before we get back to the story of Truman and the steel seizure, we need to take a detour and introduce a justice who has influenced the way we think and talk about presidential powers since 1952. 
the legendary Robert Jackson, Solicitor General of the United States, FDR's Attorney General, and a member of his inner circle, Chief Prosecutor for the United States at the Nuremberg Trials, and a Supreme Court Justice. He accomplished all this without a law degree. We turn to John Q. Barrett, a professor at St. John's University and a fellow with the Robert H. Jackson Center who's working on a biography of the justice. Here's a little about Jackson's background. He was born on a family farm in northwestern Pennsylvania. It was 1892, so he is a 19th century birth. Uh, But his father wasn't cut out for farming. And as the 20th century started, he moved the family across the state line into the thriving metropolis of Frewsburg, New York, which is basically a stop sign of a town. And that's where Jackson grew up. And young Robert Jackson was very smart, voracious reader, uh, got involved in oratory and debating activity, and, and was the star of his small town public high school. He was the valedictorian in 1909, but it was a small class. Uh, he was 17 years old, and then he, the next year, commuted up the valley to Jamestown, New York, and he did a second senior year of high school. And there he had special teachers who really gave him a kind of tutorial program. And so by the time he was 18, um, he'd had a lot of education, and he was also itching to get on with life. And so instead of going to college, he became an apprentice in a two-man Jamestown, New York law office. A chance meeting pulled Jackson into the political world, where he would meet someone who played a big part in his later career. It began in 1911 in Albany with a handshake. The mentor for whom Jackson was apprenticing, the trial lawyer, was a state Democratic uh, county official and a Wheeler dealer. And he brought his boy Jackson with him to Albany and introduced him to lots of politicals. And one was the freshman state senator from Dutchess County, New York, Frank Roosevelt. Uh, Frank Roosevelt was 28. Bob Jackson was 18. And then a couple years later, when Wilson wins the presidency for the first time in a while, there's a Democrat in the White House. Democrats from Western New York State have a shot at patronage appointments. Uh, Jackson is one of those young Democratic lawyers. He goes to Washington, but the only guy he really knows in Washington who helps him make appointments is the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Frank Roosevelt, who's now starting to call himself Franklin. And that's when they begin to sort of remember each other and correspond. And, uh, and it's a political relationship. Jumping some more years forward, when Franklin Roosevelt is running for governor of New York in 1928, he spins his Rolodex to kind of collect every potential supporter he's got across the large landmass of New York State. And one guy he knows in Chautauqua County, New York, the far western side of the state, is Robert H. Jackson, who by that time is a very prosperous, successful, um, you know, 30-some-year-old lawyer. And that kind of pulls Jackson back into the Roosevelt orbit. As we all know, Roosevelt won the governor race and then went on to win the White House in 1932. What was Jackson up to in the meantime? He's a, a private sector lawyer with all kinds of clients, from pro bono criminal defendants charged with murder to you know, corporations and uh, oil companies in the Pennsylvania oil fields. After FDR won the presidency, Jackson came to Washington to join the Roosevelt administration in 1934. As John put it, He kind of holds out for a job that sounds interesting. So it's not until 1934 that he goes to Washington. And it's the job that's Assistant General Counsel of the Revenue Bureau 
in the Treasury Department. Today, it's the IRS General Counsel. Then he moved over to the recently created Securities and Exchange Commission. He's detailed there and spends a a stretch defending the constitutionality of a high-profile federal statute, the Public Utility Holding Company Act. Then in 1936, he moves over to DOJ. This is his second senatorial confirmation. He's confirmed as Assistant Attorney General heading the Tax Division. Uh, And then in 1937, he's moved over to head the Antitrust Division. In 1938, he's appointed Solicitor General, confirmation number three. And for two years, he is the government's principal advocate in the Supreme Court, argues about 40 cases, dazzles the Supreme Court. Dazzled indeed. Justice Louis Brandeis remarked that Jackson should be Solicitor General for life. But after two years, the escalator keeps moving up. In 1940, he's appointed Attorney General. That's the fourth confirmation. And he holds that job for about 18 months. And that is a lot of legal advising in the context of war preparation. And then in 1941, after 18 months as AG, he's appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, And that's the fifth Senate confirmation. And he's all of 49 years old. Um, So it's quite a meteoric rise for a Western New York lawyer who thought he was coming to Washington for a six-month, you know, experience in political service before returning to private practice. As John explained, Jackson had become FDR's go-to guy. Jackson was really a, a protege, was really a potential successor of Franklin Roosevelt. He was somebody who was brought into, you know, sort of every next tough fight that came along. My buddy, my buddy, nobody. Once on the bench, though, Jackson took the job seriously and tried to leave politics in the past. He had a philosophy that the role required a different behavior. And so he really believed I'm putting on a robe uh, and that kind of covers everything I was before. And now my job is really to judge and to be a lawman. Um, And sure, I'm personally fond of Franklin Roosevelt and forever grateful to him, uh, but I don't work for him anymore. A little bit independent In your walk A little bit independent In your talk He just thought a judge's life, as best a judge could, was to push politics away. Just four years into his tenure on the bench, Jackson took a sort of leave of absence. Here's John. So jump to 1945 when Truman, you know, totally unprepared, inherits the presidency and inherits, you know, all these commitments and big projects. You know, he learns about the Manhattan Project. Germany's about to be defeated. Hitler's about to be apprehended. We're supposedly in a commitment with our allies together to do something to hold the Nazis accountable. He needs another, you know, like great lawyer. And the advisors, plus his own instinct, is to reach to the Supreme Court to grab Justice Jackson for what becomes Nuremberg. Jackson said yes, and he was off to Germany, unaware just how long he would be gone. He missed a whole term of the court. He didn't ask the chief justice. He didn't consult his colleagues, including his dear friend, Felix Frankfurter. Um, The president asked, and he kind of negotiated privately with the president for a couple of days about the details. uh, And then the president announced it publicly. And Chief Justice Stone was very unhappy. Jackson thought, you know, this is going to be he was sold a bill of goods and he kind of believed too much of it, that it was all ready to go and it would be a summer job and he might be a little late, but more or less he'd be back on the bench 
for the start of the new term in October of 1945. And, you know, that was all nonsense and he was a year late. Um, and so the court functioned as a court of eight with him away. And, and between the pre-existing personal tensions, let's put it that way, um, the pure jealousy, why Jackson, not me, the extra workload of he's away and his work has to be divvied up by us, um, the, the very heavy docket and consequential things that they were deciding in that term, and then Stone dropping dead, so it became a court of seven, um, made it, you know, a very hard absence. I still get jealous when they look at you. I may not show it. Um, at some point, Jackson, you know, realizing this was taking too long, uh, told Truman, you know, I quit. Uh, appoint a new justice. I'll resolve. stick with this job. I have to see this through. That's the right thing to do, but you should have a court of nine. And Truman refused to let him resign. As John mentioned, Chief Justice Stone died in April of 1946 while Jackson was away at Nuremberg. Everybody knew that Roosevelt would have made Jackson chief justice. And for goodness sakes, Harry Truman has picked Jackson, you know, out of not only the justices, but every lawyer on earth to represent the United States and prosecuting the surviving Nazis. So, you know, who's he going to make chief justice? Uh, it's got to be Jackson. And that, in fact, was Truman's instinct. Um, and then a really dirty political process in Washington, um, which Jackson had no ability to sort of even know about, much less combat or defend himself in, uh, kind of trashed Jackson, talked him down. Two other justices sort of threatened to quit the court were Truman to elevate Jackson. And Truman basically backs off of all of this and says, I'm going to pick my poker playing buddy, who's my secretary of treasury, Fred Vinson. And in June of 46, that's who he makes chief justice. And whether or not the absence hindered his shot at becoming chief justice, the experience at Nuremberg had a deep impact on Jackson. John noted. But what Nuremberg was, was both a trial of 21 principal surviving Nazi leaders across the different sectors of their responsibility. Um, it was an autopsy of executive power um, and executive power in its most perverse war waging, extermination perpetrating um, dimensions. Jackson went from being a staunch defender of an expansive, energetic executive, FDR's go-to guy who helped him consolidate power in the executive branch to a serious skeptic of placing too much power in one man's hands. It's an understatement to say the experience at Nuremberg changed Robert Jackson. It transformed his worldview and would pervade his judicial opinions and extrajudicial writings and speeches for the rest of his life. So that's Robert Jackson, but we should also introduce Truman's poker buddy, Fred Vinson. The son of a county jailer, Fred Vinson was born in Louisa, Kentucky in 1890. Though he came from humble beginnings, he went on to serve in all three branches of government, a rare distinction. He was a U.S. House representative for Kentucky, head of the Office of Economic Stabilization under Roosevelt, Truman's Treasury Secretary, a judge on the D.C. Circuit, and Chief Justice of the United States. But he was not a terribly successful chief. As Richard Kluger, author of Simple Justice, wrote, the Vincent Court was perhaps the most severely fractured court in history, testament on in the face of it to Vincent's failure as Chief Justice. 
In fairness to Vincent, though, he inherited a court that was already broken. Nine scorpions in a bottle, as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes called them. Though some of those scorpions were gone by the time of Vincent's arrival, a good number were still there. In any event, Vincent's tenure was short. He died of a heart attack in 1953 after only seven years as Chief Justice. That brings us to the showdown between President Truman and the Supreme Court. Truman announced on television on April 8, 1952, that the government was seizing the steel mills. Less than 30 minutes later, lawyers for the steel mills were knocking on the front door of a D.C. district court judge's home, demanding a temporary restraining order. Just days later, the steel mills got an injunction to stop the government from operating the mills. But the D.C. Circuit granted the government's request to freeze that injunction while the government petitioned the Supreme Court for review. And by May 12th, the justices heard oral argument and the case was submitted. Though the court was stacked with all Roosevelt and Truman appointees, only the second period in history when every justice was appointed by presidents of a single party. Justice Jackson apparently remarked to his law clerks after the argument, Well, boys, the president got licked. It didn't take long for the justices to rule, despite the fact that nearly each one had something to say. The court issued its ruling on June 2nd, 1952, with Justices Hugo Black, Felix Frankfurter, William O. Douglas, Tom Clark, Harold Burton, and Robert Jackson all writing separate opinions. These six justices agreed that Truman exceeded his power, but they all had slightly different theories as to why. And Chief Justice Vinson, joined by Justices Stanley Reed and Sherman Minton, dissented. Hugo Black's opinion is the official opinion of the court, because it was, as one justice said, the lowest common denominator— He explained in just four pages that the president doesn't have any congressional power, Congress had acted in this field, and since Truman acted contrary to what Congress prescribed, he acted beyond his power. Though we normally focus on dissents, it's Justice Jackson's concurrence that has had an enduring impact. Fear not, we'll get to the dissent in a bit. Jackson's concurrence has been cited in just about every case involving a dispute over executive power since then, and it laid out a framework that's used to this day. Since there is an audio of Jackson reading his concurrence, we asked somebody who has a few things in common with the justice to do the honors. My name is Noel Francisco. I am the partner in charge of Jones Day's Washington, D.C. office, and I served as the 47th Solicitor General of the United States. Justice Jackson began. We may well begin by a somewhat oversimplified grouping of practical situations in which a president may doubt or others may challenge his powers, and by distinguishing roughly the legal consequences of this factor of relativity. One, when the president acts pursuant to an express or implied authorization of Congress, his authority is at its maximum. Two, when the president acts in the absence of either a congressional grant or denial of authority, he can only rely upon his own independent powers. But there is a zone of twilight in which he and Congress may have concurrent authority. Therefore, congressional inertia, indifference, or quiescence may sometimes enable, if not invite, measures on independent presidential responsibility. Three, when the president takes measures incompatible with the express or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb. For then, he can rely only upon his own constitutional powers minus any constitutional powers of Congress over the matter. Turning to the dispute at hand. 
we can sustain the president only by holding that seizure of such strike-bound industries is within his domain and beyond control by Congress. What did the president cite as justification for this seizure? First, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, which vests the executive power in the president, to which Justice Jackson said, Lest I be thought to exaggerate, I quote the interpretation which his brief puts upon it. Quote, In our view, this clause constitutes a grant of all the executive powers of which the government is capable. End quote. If that be true, it is difficult to see why the forefathers bothered to add several specific items including some trifling ones. Next, the president cited the Commander-in-Chief Clause. Jackson's reply was, No doctrine that the court could promulgate would seem to me more sinister and alarming than that a president whose conduct of foreign affairs is so largely uncontrolled and often even is unknown can vastly enlarge his mastery over the internal affairs of the country by his own commitment of the nation's armed forces to some foreign venture. Finally, the president cited, Nebulous inherent powers never expressly granted, but said to have accrued to the office from the customs and claims of preceding administrations. The plea is for a resulting power to deal with a crisis or an emergency according to the necessities of the case, the unarticulated assumption being that necessity knows no law. The framers knew what emergencies were, knew the pressures they engender for authoritative action, knew too how they afford a ready pretext for usurpation. We may also suspect that they suspected that emergency powers would tend to kindle emergencies. I cannot be brought to believe that this country will suffer if the court refuses further to aggrandize the presidential office, already so potent and so relatively immune from judicial review at the expense of Congress. But I have no illusion that any decision by this court can keep power in the hands of Congress if it is not wise and timely in meeting its problems. We may say that power to legislate for emergencies belongs in the hands of Congress, but only if Congress itself can prevent power from slipping through its fingers. With all its defects, delays, and inconveniences, men have discovered no technique for long-preserving free government except that the executive be under the law and that the law be made by parliamentary deliberations. Such institutions may be destined to pass away, but it is the duty of the court to be last, not first, to give them up. Turning to Chief Justice Vinson's dissent, he really plays up the wartime emergency angle. He wrote, In passing upon the question of presidential powers in this case, we must first consider the context in which those powers were exercised. Those who suggest that this is a case involving extraordinary powers should be mindful that these are extraordinary times. A world not yet recovered from the devastation of World War II has been forced to face the threat of another and more terrifying global conflict. If it weren't for Truman, he wrote, the nation's entire basic steel production would have shut down completely if there had been no government seizure. Even ignoring for the moment whatever confidential information the president may possess as the nation's organ for foreign affairs, the uncontroverted affidavits in this record amply support the finding that a work stoppage would immediately jeopardize and imperil our national defense. He continued, If the president has any power under the Constitution to meet a critical situation in the absence of express statutory authorization, there is no basis whatsoever for criticizing the exercise of such power. 
Otherwise, the president is left powerless at the very moment when the need for action may be most pressing and when no one other than he is immediately capable of action. He then quoted Hamilton on the need for an energetic executive and continued, quote, It is thus apparent that the presidency was deliberately fashioned as an office of power and independence. Of course, the framers created no autocrat capable of arrogating any power into himself at any time, but neither did they create an automaton impotent to exercise the powers of government at a time when the survival of the republic itself may be at stake. Vincent then discussed examples of energetic acts by presidents, Washington summoning the militia to deal with factions in Pennsylvania that flouted the national revenue laws, Jefferson's initiative in the Louisiana Purchase, Jackson's removal of government deposits from the Bank of the United States, and Lincoln's energetic action with the outbreak of the Civil War in the absence of a declaration of war. Vincent concluded, The Constitution was itself adopted in a period of grave emergency. While emergency does not create power, emergency may furnish the occasion for the exercise of power. Let's unpack these opinions. In Jackson's concurrence, John explained, He writes a series of of essays about the commander-in-chief clause and the take-care clause and the nature of delegations and executive power, and that's some of where he draws on comparative history and his own experience studying executive power as he was prosecuting at Nuremberg. It also set up a framework um, that at least starts the conversation whenever you're in one of these areas where a president is doing something out beyond a statute and out beyond an enumerated Article II power. That framework is, as Steve explained. The three categories, we might as well tick through them, are the first one is when the president has been given uh, explicit or implied authority from Congress, which is his, you know, which is where his power is at its strongest. When the, the second one is when the president is acting without any congressional statement or, or you know, Congress hasn't spoken to the issue, let's say. Uh, and then the third is where the Congress would, president would be trampling the prerogative of uh, Congress, which is when his power is at its least. But the main question in the case is, in which category does this really fall? And, and is there such a thing as a kind of residual presidential power to deal with emergencies that we can find? Jennifer observed. But I think if you look at the way the case was litigated, the government really did seem to be trying to make a, the powerful, uh, more extreme argument that inherent in the executive power alone, the take care clause and then commander-in-chief authority that the president could do this action. I think implicitly acknowledging the statutes were not in his favor, but it's just not clear to me that um, in the absence of statutory authority here that the court was going to be ever really comfortable. I, I think, thankfully, with approving uh, President Truman's action, because it wasn't just, again, the debate between Congress and the executive, but here it had to do with kind of private property, right? And so you also have the shadow of... Um, you know, or is there a taking of private property here in a way that's inappropriate and too intrusive of private rights that I think also could have been motivating a lot of discomfort? Here's more on Jackson's concurrence from John. It's not the sort of narrow approach that others are taking. It considers um, really historically um, the nature of executive power. And it's not just American. It's, it's got English history in it. It's got Nazi history in it. It's got Soviet history in it. Um, it's, you know, considering 
government against a businessman, which ultimately is what this case was. As Steve pointed out, we see Jackson invoking his experience in the Nuremberg trials and I mean, just with Nazi Germany. And I mean, and he's good at that saying, look, I don't think we're on the cusp of dictatorship here, but any step we take in that direction is a bad step. Not for nothing, like we should really look at what has happened in the world in the last, what, at that point it was six, seven years, decade, you know, et cetera. If we sanction uses of emergency authority, as Jackson put it, we're going to get more of them. And we're going to get more of them that are not even close to necessary. The Constitution doesn't explicitly give him this power. Congress hasn't given him the power. And not for nothing, Congress considered giving this power and then did not give that. So that's yet another reason not to find that he has the power to seize the steel mills. And as John said. But then in the end, he comes back to Congress and he comes back to the sort of starting point of the Constitution, which is Article One. And he said, you know, we have a enumerated system of how the country responds to crisis. It is Congress that has these vast powers to legislate and to empower the president to respond to a crisis. Turning to the dissent, Steve observed. I think this is one of the troubling parts of the dissent. Uh, We'll try to find this in his enumerated powers in Article 2. And then Congress has done a bunch of stuff. We're in the middle of a war. There are treaties. There's UN action. America's the center of, you know, it's, it's, it's a superpower. And I kind of look at it as, and therefore he must have some power to deal with this. In other words, our boys overseas needed steel, and by golly, Truman was going to make sure they had it. But the question ultimately becomes, is there such a thing as implied presidential power to deal with an emergency? And if so, what sort of power is it? As Jennifer explained. And so Justice Benson in his dissent really seems to conceive of the executive power as containing some inherent kind of amped up emergency authority so that if the country is facing a war at that time, the opinion was issued and the steel mills were seized. Of course, there was conflict in Korea. We had come off not too long in the past World War II. And so the idea is that the president is the commander in chief and one sees that as including the power to protect the country. Of course, if the president can establish there's an emergency, then he or she needs to be able to take over aspects of the economy to be able to address the emergency. And most scholars today, I think even original scholars, even unitary executive scholars would actually not take quite that broad of a view. They might think that executive power historically at times included some kind of emergency authority, but you have to recognize the place of executive power within the broader context of the Constitution. And viewing the Constitution as a whole, Jennifer observed. Justice Vincent's dissent there is quite distinct, really, from a full picture of the constitutional structure, and that it seems like a stretch to say a president's emergency military power, even if it might include, as the current executive branch office of legal counsel says, you know, the power to be able to repel imminent attacks, for example, that taking over a domestic mill when there's no imminent threat is of a totally different kind and seems quite in the wheelhouse of the commerce regulatory authority that Congress um, was always supposed to have from the beginning. Looking at Vincent's parade through presidential history, Steve said. Essentially, some of them were either authorized, some of them clearly were not authorized. Others were in a, in a context, Lincoln during the Civil War, in which we had actual fighting on American soil, and he was taking action within the context of that. 
That's a very different question. When you're seizing property, when the, the, the troops are in the process of marching right now, it's more like, you know, it's like a police chase. Are you really going to say the legislature has to authorize cops to jump into this car at this moment or to drive through a stoplight at this particular time? No, it's in the nature of what they do. There is something to the idea of implied presidential powers. And they're obviously at the height or at the highest when he's acting in a military capacity. Washington calling out the militia, he has the authority to call out the militia in Article 2. So, and whether it was on the, you know, on the margins of what he can actually do or not, okay, at least it's close to an actual power that he has. They're historical examples. We need to look at them as such, okay, it happened. Maybe we can learn something from it. Maybe one of the lessons we learn is we shouldn't do that again. Maybe a lesson we learn is, hey, now that that's happened once, we have experience with it and Congress can actually do this the right way instead of just saying oh well it happened in the past let's re- let's repeat it in the in the in the future so that's not that's not good legal reasoning it's just it's just you know interesting historical kind of anecdotes and uh, and examples in the end though it seemed to come down to personal loyalty for the dissenters they trusted truman was acting in the nation's best interest so they would have given him flexibility justice minton apparently told his clerks that truman said he needed this power and by god they weren't going to take it away from him Vincent and Minton were regulars at Truman's poker game at the White House. And as it turns out, Truman may have actually asked for their advice on how to deal with the steel mills before he seized them. After the ruling came out, President Truman was not pleased. Justice Hugo Black and a few of the other justices tried to smooth things over by inviting Truman to a gathering. Truman came and apparently said, Hugo, I don't care much for your law, but by golly, this bourbon is good. As a Kentuckian, I can confirm that bourbon has the power to heal all wounds. So what explains the staying power of Jackson's concurrence and why it continues to get attention to this day? Here's John. It got noticed. It got press. It got read. Um, he was Justice Jackson, after all. He you know, prosecuted the Nazis in Nuremberg. He was not just a justice by the time Youngstown is decided. He's got a kind of brand stature. A part of that also is his writing. He was regarded then and is regarded now as the best or one of the best writers in the history of the court. And the opinion does say it's it's something you can see the drafts in his archived papers. It's something he really worked on. Um, and so it was a special opinion to him and it and it reads so beautifully. But the opinion also had some champions, including... A big one was William Rehnquist, who was Jackson's law clerk in 1952, you know, was part of the, the team, although Jackson did really all his own writing, but he's part of the team that produces this concurring opinion uh, and then becomes a justice 20 years later and becomes chief justice in 1986. Um, and in Rehnquist's executive power opinions, he, you know, both used highlighted, but also, you know, sort of refashioned Youngstown. I think that sort of put it in the spotlight for a next generation. In the decades since Youngstown, there have been plenty of clashes over executive power, from Nixon's impoundment to funds, to Bush's response to 9-11, to Obama's recess appointments when the Senate wasn't actually in recess, to Trump's eviction moratorium, to Biden's vaccine mandate. Jackson's concurrence has been instructive when presidents exceed their enumerated powers. But the steel seizure still stands out for its boldness. As Jennifer explained, in many of the clashes that followed... 
there actually were not claims of inherent constitutional amped up authority, because the reality in our modern government is that Congress has actually, through legislation and statutes, made the policy determination to delegate significant uh, broad authorities to presidents and agencies, sometimes in the name of an emergency and sometimes just in terms of the ability to exercise domestic powers. What actually really happens in practice often is that it comes down to a question of statutory interpretation often because Congress has put in place so many emergency authorities as to does the action the president wants to take or thinks is necessary for the country come within the terms of the statute? And if it does, then you're always in that first um, most powerful space and an awful lot, awful lot can be done. And over the past two years, the COVID-19 pandemic has led executives from the president of the United States all the way down to the county level to take extraordinary actions. But it seems with calls to treat everything from gun violence to racial injustice to climate change as an emergency, they are hooked on emergency powers. Steve had some thoughts on the subject. Two things have happened. One is it's it's become more uh, common to call things, to refer to the sorts of problems that at least people think government should solve these days as emerg- emergencies, as like, you know, the kinds of things that making war analogies, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on this, the war on that. I tend to view what's happened over, you know, the intervening years since, well, the New Deal, let's say, up to now or the World War II, as a steady growth of government power um, and a concentration of that power. And compounding this problem is, as Justice Jackson suggested, the fact that Congress too often lets its power slip through its fingers. And what can be done? Steve said. I put a large part of the responsibility on the courts. If the courts are willing to enforce separation of powers, prevent the executive branch from exercising Congress's power, people will rightly look to Congress to fix the problems or deal with the issues they need to, and maybe vote the bums out of office, and maybe there'll be some public pressure, and maybe we'll get into a kind of virtuous cycle of constitutional power being used the right way rather rather than the wrong way. But there's hope, as Steve put it. This is an interesting time in terms of the courts. They are getting a backbone, at least on separation of powers type issues, in a way that I haven't seen in pretty much my entire career. And it has echoes of, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse court, you know, the pre, uh, the sort of Lochner court, the people call it, fighting back or pushing back against FDR's power. Some federal and state courts have pushed back on stay-at-home orders, business and church closures, the eviction moratorium, and improper delegation of lawmaking to governors, and challenges to President Biden's COVID vaccine mandate are currently pending. No matter how pressing the situation or well-intentioned the action, there is no emergency powers exception to the Constitution. Justice Robert Jackson put it best when he said, emergency powers tend to kindle emergencies. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Sorry. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Truman invoked the defense, that's hard to say, Defense Production Act. Okay, 
Truman invoked the... (laughs) I forgot to ask you about dressing up, and I obviously did not. (laughs) I'm wearing a sweatshirt, so you're good. (laughs) So I think we're we're good to go. Um, I was planning to be in the office today, and then it's a whole saga with my stove but anyway <laughs> I sorry got- I, I shouldn't laugh it's i know the feeling like i have crap going wrong constantly in my house and i'm like ah i have to stay it's home today such good language is it slavish or slavish it's slavish slavish is not a word no i read it as slavish in my head too because or slavish because i was thinking of slavic i don't know my brain. yeah but, but we're bad slavish. at pr- we're bad at pronouncing things so no, it's i are. think it's slavish we are um I love the language in this opinion, though. Ossify, another good word. Dude, I mean, Vincent, he must have had a great thesaurus, is Seriously. all I got to say. Seriously. Okay. Continue. He could probably pronounce all this. You don't know about this? <laughs> no, no, they did tell you because you're on your Twitter handle is here. Congrats on a great year, E.H. Slattery, Anastasia Esquire. Oh, <laughs> Shows you, I, I probably retweeted it and didn't read what PLF said. <laughs> Why the hell haven't we prepared for this one by all the state legislatures and Congress actually passing the right laws? Why the hell are we even talking about, uh, you know, extra constitutional implied emergency powers? This is a, this is silly. It's weird to say, fortunately, his tenure was short because he died. I, I know. I was thinking that. Um, <laughs> he was just like, Vincent's about, tenure was short. How about, in any event. Yeah. Okay, that's better. <laughs> I was thinking that, like, fortunately, fortunately he, he died. Yeah. okay you're already recording us (laughs) it's set up automatically so i can't screw it up i will start over i goofed up right off the off the bat i'm just my brain today i was up late editing the podcast for you hojos it's all that coffee (laughs) true probably too much scrambling your brain in the war between the states. The war between <laughs> the war of northern aggression. Is that what it sounds like? It does. It totally Well, does. Vincent was from Kentucky, so. 